Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Maris Gavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week, we're joined by Melissa Harris-Perry, writer, speaker, and co-host of the new podcast, System Check. Today on Run Tell This, we're talking all about the nail-biter presidential election. Why were the polls so off? What does Trump's better-than-expected performance say about white supremacy? And where do we go from here? Ooh. Sweet Jesus. All right. I, I thought we'd be having a different conversation today. I really did. And I I don't mind being wrong. So I tweeted last night when the returns first started coming, like seven o'clock. I think it's going to be an early night because I thought that the key states were going to be decisively in Biden's corner very early. So, you know, once Ohio and Florida come in, if they're decisively for Biden, you know, there's no path for Trump. And that's what I thought was going to happen. I didn't necessarily know that it was those specific states, but I thought that the key states were going to come in early. For real, for real. Why, why did you think, what, what was happening that made you think that this was going to come down on Biden's end and decisively and quickly? You all, it's like we coordinate. You always set me up for exactly what I want to talk about. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about polling. So... When you look at the polls going into this election, the ABC Washington Post poll had Biden with a 17 point lead in Wisconsin. Quinnipiac had Biden up five in Florida and four in Ohio, 10 points nationally. So I had this confidence based on the polling. I will say I'm not surprised that this is where we are this morning. And I'm not sure that the polls got it wrong in precisely the way, for example, that they did in 2016. So the 2016 so-called wrong on the polls is, I think, actually much more about the ways that polls were reported, because there actually was a lot of data in 2016 showing exactly what happened. But we are genuinely in a time where um, we are underestimating and our conventional wisdoms are not serving us well. So just a couple of things around that. One, what President Trump has been able to do both in 2016 and then again this year, is he has brought out first-time voters. He's brought out new voters. And new voters who are really different than the new voters who pollsters are looking for. And that it was white boys, white men, uh, who were coming back. So it didn't mean they had never been voters, but it means they're not likely voters, they're not on that same list, they're not on the chronic voters, they are Trump voters. They are people who are coming out because they are excited about President Trump and what he represents. And they are not being well polled. And so I and, and I thank you for being way more eloquent about that than I could have when I when I said asked Mara the question in in my not so eloquent manner, right? The the thing is the polls polls Pollsters, we we should know by now, right? We've we've had several election cycles, not just not just 2016 and 2020, but you can go all the way back to you can go all the way back to uh, to John Kerry versus George Bush. You can go all the way back to to 2000. Like there's a the 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 professional political prognosticators try saying that five times fast. After, <laughs> 
after you haven't slept and, and spent all last exactly. and spent all last <laughs> night editing and talking and drinking. Um, but though those folks have a tendency now to just not have the bead on this the way we expect them to have a bead on it. Um, my thought going into today was that if if anything, the one thing that we couldn't rely on was polls telling us that Donald Trump was as far ahead. At, excuse me, that um, that Joe Biden was as far ahead as they were saying he was like Joe Biden plus five in Florida just didn't seem to make any any sense by any stretch of the imagination. They had to my mind, they had to be missing something. They had to have been missing something to see to to tell us that that we were going to in in one fell swoop. Think about this. In mm -hmm. one fell swoop, they were going to we were going to flip or not we. Let me let me step. Let me let me take myself out of it. But in one fell swoop, Democrats were going to flip Florida, Georgia, Texas, and Arizona and take back some of the former firewall states in the upper Midwest that that Trump had flipped in 2020. You were going to tell me that all of that was going to happen in one election. Keith, I don't want you to take yourself out of it. I want like, you to, I really don't. I want you to put yourself dead center in it because I feel like you are taking us to the land of political epistemology. How do we know what we know? And when I've had people asking me this cycle, what did I think was going to happen? The, the question I would ask them isn't, well, have you seen what Quinnipiac is saying? It's, what is your auntie saying? What is the, the number of people who last night were tweeting and Facebooking and saying, I'm so nervous, I'm so scared. So I'd go back to 2008 and I'd say in 2008, when we'd never elected a black president before, when it seemed very possible that we might not, did you feel scared? Was your feeling fear? And almost like, no, you didn't feel scared. You were like, I don't know what's about to happen, but you didn't feel like, like that raw terror. If we were about, as you point out, Keith, if we were about to have that kind of democratic win, if Democrats were about to take Florida with ease, if Georgia had organized all the way back into the union, I mean, they ain't really been in the union since 1865, but they were going to come all the way back in and be one of the 50 American states again. If Pennsylvania, we would feel it. And, and I, I just want to acknowledge that the epistemology of your life experience also matters. It doesn't mean that you should take data and information out, but you should always start with what I would call black girl skepticism relative to data. Because if those data don't line up with your internal auntie wisdom, if they don't, if, if you know that the only way that Barack Obama won election and re-election was by black women voting at rates that were only seen in countries where it is required to vote like we were voting as though it were illegal not to vote if you know that that people like colin powell were on the side of president obama in 08 and he still just got over the hurdle then you knew damn well that this was not going to be a night where it was some big blue wave celebration 
even just go back and remember 2018. Know what you already knew in your gut before election night in 2018 in the midterms about the people who had come out, what was happening, what was possible. Yes, the blue wave of 2018, you know, was showed up on election night, but you already felt it. You felt it in all of your information sources before. You know, and, and to build on that, right, you know, thinking about 2018 is interesting because while there was the blue wave, what we also saw was we saw a midterm election that had presidential-like turnout on both sides, which should have been a clear warning sign to anyone who believed that the Trump voters weren't showing up this time around, right? That in a mid, in an off-year midterm election, we saw races that were rivaling presidential turnout in a lot of places in the country. And that's a sign that everybody's worked up. Uh, and, and nothing about these last two years was going to take diehard Trump supporters and, and move them elsewhere. You know, it's it's been, you know, as I think about the polls, you know, I, I also think about kind of how slow the collective we, whether it be the media or the prognosticators or whatnot, have been to learn some of these lessons. So this, so this was the year, for example, we learned the exit polls lesson. So all the coverage wasn't about the exit polls, knowing that they don't quite work, right? Uh, we also seem to learn some of the national polling lesson, although we didn't fully learn that, right? National polls don't mean anything because we don't have a national vote. Doesn't doesn't matter, right? Um, and but but what we have not learned all the way or what we don't accept is like, I almost think that we see, or too many people see too many polls or, or see polling as too exact of a science uh, without acknowledging that assumptions get built into how those polls are conducted in the first place. They weight the polls. They decide what percentage of our other people we're polling should be likely Republicans or committed Republicans or Trump voters or first time vote. And so they build these polls based on a set of assumptions about who's going to show up on election day. This gets to what Melissa was saying, right? And so if who shows up on election day is different than the assumptions in the polls, it's a measure of the wrong people. It doesn't matter. And, and so what we've seen here is we have a president, an incumbent president, who appeals to a different slice of the electorate, many people who are Trump voters, not regular voters. He's someone who bends the political uh, demographics a bit. You've got a lot of white union Democrats who are Trump voters, cops and firefighters, right, who may show up in a poll as a likely D, uh, but in fact are not. Uh, and, and so it suddenly shifts a lot of the assumptions. Uh, and and so I think that it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, and I want to go from here. The other thing that I think has been really interesting has been to watch the extent to which, um, you know, I feel like I've heard so much conversation about Florida, about Texas, about Georgia. I don't really know that I've seen a ton of reporting from Milwaukee from Detroit, the two places that seem like they're about to decide the election. Mm. I read a lot of pieces about Texas. I read a lot of pieces about Georgia. Um, I, I, frankly, North Carolina, which is really close. From what Mara was, was saying to Wesley's point, to, to your point about not taking yourself out of this, right? I live in, I grew up in Pittsburgh, the seat of Allegheny County, uh, where I currently live today. I've also lived in Atlanta, 
I've lived in. I'm sorry. I've also lived in Atlanta. No, I'm sorry that you had to. <laughs> oh. that. No, I'm, I just, I just, I, I'm just expressing I, my concern I, that you had that life. Experience. I, I enjoyed Atlanta. I, oh, I feel I, bad I, that he lives in Atlanta. Pittsburgh. Um, I, I lived, I've lived in Atlanta. I've lived in Cincinnati. You can say sorry for that one. Uh, and I've lived in Cleveland, which you can also say sorry for. Yeah, get out of here with that. Um, so I've had. Oh, I'd I'd be a Brown. I'd be a Steeler. All that before I'd be a freaking. Well, well, I mean, the only, the only acceptable answer Shame. to that is is the currently seven and zero Pittsburgh Steelers. But we talked about that on the outro <laughs> to, to the last podcast, so we can get back to it at the end of this. That's right. But um, my the point that I'm that I'm getting at is I've lived in these places, right? Like. I'm talking to people and texting with people in Georgia last night, in Ohio last night, and I'm living in 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 Pittsburgh, right? I know things about about these states that don't follow what the polls are telling you. The polls are telling you that in Pennsylvania, Biden is up by by double digits. And I'm and I'm going first of all polling Pennsylvania in and of itself. Wes, you t- you talk about we don't have national we don't have national elections. Pennsylvania in and of itself needs to be polled three separate ways because Pennsylvania is three different states. You got Philadelphia, you got Pittsburgh, two reliably democratic uh, two reliably democratic areas but very but drastically different by population, right? By demographic. And then you have the rest of the state which is Alabama. And I don't even say that to be a, I don't even say that to be to be a pejorative, but I mean it like the rest of the state for the most part is farmland in Appalachia. If you're not in in Allegheny County or in Philly or the Philly suburbs, you're in places that don't look anything like either one of those two places and yet they're telling me to bet on the fact that the two corners of the state where they're probably doing most of the polling is representative of the Democrat who never wins in the middle of the state, which is the majority of the state, something doesn't look right about that. Something doesn't feel right about that. Something is telling me that something is wrong when my friends in Ohio are saying, we're worried, we're worried, when my friends who happen to to work primarily in politics down in Atlanta are saying, we're worried, we're worried, we're working very hard, and you're telling me we're flipping all these states. I see Trump signs all the time when I leave my house. Here's why I question that kind of political intuition, if you will, which is, you know, what Melissa was speaking to is like, what do you know in your gut? What are you seeing and hearing from the people around you? Here's the problem with that. And I think this is really the first election where we've seen what I'm about to describe at the levels that we're seeing it right now. This algorithm based media diet where based on what you look at and who you follow, you will be given more of the same. So you can create two accounts. One can follow liberal pundits. One can follow right-wing pundits. And you will get a different stream of news. Your your feed will look different every day. And it's going to look different in a way that reinforces what you already believe. Most people don't even realize they're in the echo Mm -hmm. chamber. They believe that what they're seeing and hearing is a reflection of reality. At least being in the media, we're all aware of the fact that that is not reality, that there are a few places where you can go to accurately get real information, but you have to seek them out because the algorithm is only gonna give you more of what you already like. I appreciate the clarification because I'm not trying to move us away from fact-based or data-based 
analysis. I, I rely on data as a, both as a public opinion um, researcher and as a political scientist. But what I do want to suggest is that we should always check that data over and against our experience and our intuition and not simply our social media feed. So I'm just going to give you a quick example. So I, here I live in North Carolina. We knew that North Carolina was going to be a key state. There's no question about it. It was already swinging in 2016. My husband and I are both registered Democrats in the state, and we both never missed in our adult lives an election, whether we lived in North Carolina or prior, or where we lived before. But in the six years we've lived here, we've voted in every primary and every general. So we are, as you all know, on every list, we are listed as chronic Democratic voters. So I want to show you something on the Zoom camera here. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six pieces of mail from the Republican Party and the Trump campaign to my household this week. That's this week's mail. And from the Democrats, I have one piece telling me that early voting is beginning. And then I have one piece from Black Pack, not even from the campaign. Why is it Donald Trump wanted my vote more than Joe Biden? Biden and Harris didn't ask us to do anything. So again, with my anger about this, there are more historically black colleges in North Carolina than in any other state. Kamala should have been in here every day, all day. So she just but do you been. think that they were focusing their resources on the places that they knew needed the most attention? It's kind of like when you're the A student child that always follows rules, you don't get any attention, but your sibling who's the problem child is always caught with cigarettes or skipping school. They well, get I mean, all of the attention. Uh, still if they were, this. then maybe they didn't <laughs> notice that the president was having white supremacist Klan rallies with his base. Like, are you, are we going to catch it or not? Like, mobilize your damn so, base. So fun. And you can't just wait for other people to do so, it. So my homeboy the other day sent me a sent me a text of a of a meme that somebody made. Pittsburgh, there's a neighborhood called Homewood, and and. Back in the '90s, when we went through our our phase with gang wars, Homewood was was affiliated with Crip. It still is on 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 to, to a certain extent, but just but just follow me because it's a political point to this. So somebody took a, took a picture of Joe Biden and superimposed a uh, like a blue bandana shirt on him, and said Joe Joe Biden was in was in Homewood telling everybody like, look here, cause come on, right, <laughs> right, and. And I and I looked at that, and so we all laughed about it because because we from the neighborhood. But but the larger point to that was like Joe Biden was in Pittsburgh on Monday night, wrapping up his campaign, and what Joe Biden needed to do in Pennsylvania was to turn out as many black folks as he could possibly have turned out in Philadelphia and in, and in Pittsburgh to much to a much smaller extent in Pittsburgh because. Population is larger in Philly, but you needed to get as many black folks in those urban areas out in your base as you possibly could. Joe Biden came to Pittsburgh on Monday night and ended his campaign by having Barack Obama down in Florida, which he didn't win. And in Pittsburgh, he went to 
Heinz Field and had a concert with Lady Gaga. Joe Biden should have had the blue rag on in Homewood, like the meme said. That's that. That's where he should have been. Well, right? Imagine if instead of Florida, Obama's in Raleigh, Durham, or in Charlotte. Yeah. Right. With how close North Carolina came, and by the way, and this gets me to one of the other. You things. don't even have to send Barack. You don't. You don't even have to send Barack. You could have sent Eric Holder down here. You could have sent um, uh, our own homegirl, the one uh, Lynch. Right. You have to come. And I know there's a pandemic, but you still have to come because we're all going to work. So you so you got to you have to come. You have to come ask for the votes. And of course, we we showed out and did all that anyway. And honestly, he probably won. But he didn't deserve to. He didn't win because he did it. He won because we did it. Biden didn't ask for the votes. We just gave them to him. But he didn't actively come and try to win the vote. But, you know, the one thing I will say that I was it was striking to me as I was looking at this last night, right, is that on the Democratic side, there was a few big rushes of energy, uh, one of which came after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Um, there was massive amounts of money, uh, big conversations, most of it revolving around the Supreme Court and what would happen next. And I remember looking at the races by how much money was spent. And, and you have currently you have Democrats in, Mo in Montana and Maine and North Carolina that just barely lost close races. Yet the amount, but yet, yet those races got so much less money and spending than Kentucky, which was never going to happen, beating Mitch McConnell. Uh, and South Carolina, um, as much as people love Jamie Harrison, was also I mean, come on. always <laughs> a massive uh, uphill. Again, it would have the to be. The amount of money spent in South Carolina was crazy down. Well, and especially, and especially because South down. Carolina is a big state with multiple media markets. The, the, like the, the bang for your dollar compared to a Maine or a Montana where suddenly, right, Kentucky where you're having to spend in the Cincinnati market as well. It's just like, it's a very, um, you just look at some of these strategic decisions about who won, who would handle it. And by the way, someone mentioned this last night and I don't, you know, you don't, again, hindsight is always 2020, right? But you have, in Montana, you have a former Democratic presidential candidate who they talked into running and who came very close as well as any Democrat was going to do in Montana came much closer than some of these other races people paid attention to. John Hickenlooper in Colorado wins handily in Colorado. And mm -hmm. I do think that should raise some questions. I think they're fair questions to be asked about, should Beto have been on the ticket in Texas? Should Stacey have been on the ticket in Georgia? Should like in a world in which it's actually the end of the world crisis, which most Democrats and liberals and progressives would lead you to believe. Should you have found the most popular person with a D next to their, your, their name in every state with a race and talked them onto the ballot? Well, they they well they probably still won the White House. Is it? You talk about looking around at your exactly. experience. They probably still won the White House. I don't know if you can consider that a victory. As it stands, the Republicans have a significant have a have a pretty good chance of still holding on to the Senate, and they've actually gained yeah, and still hold the House. They've actually yeah. gained seats. In the house so so in the executive the, the executive branch under a democrat is still going to have to contend with a hostile uh legislative yep. branch and hostile courts that have been that have been packed irreversibly if they if you don't take the senate 
that have impacted irreversibly. Even if they won the White House this time around, you got to look around and say, like, what did they what did they really win? What did the Democrats really win? Because this is not going to be the referendum election that gives Joe Biden and Kamala Harris the ability to go in, expand the courts and undo all of the structural damage that was done by the Trump presidency. So then let's talk about what that says about where the country is right now, because we're in the midst of the largest mass casualty event since World War II. It's not over. We're right smack in the middle of it and we're headed into winter. We have 220,000 Americans dead since March. That is the equivalent of every three-day period, 1-9-11 for the last eight months. You would think that if anything would benefit the challenger and not the incumbent, it would be mass casualties. So what does it say about the state of this country that we are on a razor thin margin that we still don't know who has won this election, even with the circumstances that we're in right now? Is it as simple as race and white supremacy? Is that too reductive? Is it about the economy? I am deeply sad this morning because, uh, you know, I did turn on cable news, God help me. And they're still coloring in the map. And um, there's this big question about who's going to take what state. And just doesn't, it does matter how the map gets colored in. But we are not waiting on the results of the election. We have the results of the election. And they are very clear. Mara, as you just pointed out, this is a president who has overseen the death of a quarter million Americans and done so with a shrug. One could imagine that a leader could oversee the, the death of, of a quarter million Americans because of any set of mass casualty events, right? Including a pandemic, which they might not be able to get hold of. It is not that in and of itself that's the problem. It's that his positionality towards it was whatever. This is a president who 10 months ago was impeached by the House of Representatives um, for his, not for lying about um, extramarital sex. He was impeached by the House of Representatives based on his behavior relative to a foreign government and relative to our own government, so relative to the balance of powers. And this is a president who at one o'clock in the morning did what he's done for four years. He lied openly. He said that he'd won the election when he is not, has not won it. And he called for the end of the democratic process to determine who has in fact won the election, whether it is him or his opponent. And despite all of that, it is pretty clear that he has either won or is within a hair's breadth of winning re-election. Again, a quarter of a million Americans dead, impeachment for his relationship with a foreign government and his failures around the balance of powers in this government, and a willingness to call for the end of the process of democracy. And we're coloring in the states red and blue. The results of the election are this, that white Americans are prepared to die in order to maintain just the version of a symbol of white supremacy. The reason you knew that those polls were wrong 
is that black people love Barack Obama, but would have put a damn mask on in a pandemic. That people stood at those rallies 48 hours after that president came out of the hospital with a highly infectious, deadly disease is why you knew we weren't about to flip a bunch of damn states because we saw white people prepared to die. We saw white people prepared to die. We are currently witnessing all around us, white people prepared to die for one reason, to maintain the symbol of white supremacy. I also think that a lot of our conversation in thought leader spaces, in media spaces, um, is willfully ignorant of the electorate. And, and, the, and what I mean by that is that if you think about the story of Donald Trump, one way you could frame the story of Donald Trump is that Americans don't care about any of these things that the media cares about. Can you believe he said this about Trump? Yeah, I believe it. Well, can you believe he did? Yeah, that's fine. Well, and the porn star, and they're like, all right, whatever. That the kind of institutionalized media, politics, the world, the, the guardrails of that conversation, I'm not discussing whether or not those things are important. Setting that aside, I'm talking about the values of mil tens of millions of Americans and things that were assumed to be third rails, assumed to be lines that could not be crossed. Actually, nope, a plurality of Americans yeah. didn't care about it at all. It wasn't a thing that was going to move them in one direction or the other. And, and, I, and, I, and I, what I also think is true is even when we get to, you know, Mara, you frame this question around the coronavirus deaths. But we do have to remember that even, I mean, the majority of Americans are not denying the coronavirus deaths, so even the more conspiratorial ones, except that some people have died, right? But that said, we do have to remember that things like the president's response are being perceived through remarkably partisan media outlets. And so to any, I, I believe it is objectively true and objectively fair to say the president and this administration bungled the response to coronavirus. There are things that could have been done more quickly, communications that could have been handled more efficiently, that there were massive bureaucratic issues. But for half of the country, that is not the news they are turning on at night. And, and, and so even when we think, how could all of these people, even despite all of these, well, Again, if what they are consuming day in and day out is that, look, what was he supposed to do? This was a virus created in a lab in China, set out to come kill us. We've done everything we possibly can. It's just inevitable. And in fact, the worst part of this is the econ is economic stuff and Trump's trying to fight to keep it. Like the reality is we're not living in the same worlds. We are living in a diametrically opposed world. But what you're speaking to is exactly what I was talking about, which is the difficulty in pinning down what's real. So to give an example, my husband and I, a few weeks ago, were talking about the election and we've all talked on this podcast about um, our concerns for post-election violence. And I said to him, you know, now it's too late because we live in New York and it takes forever to get a gun here. But I said, I really wish we had thought to get a firearm earlier. Because I would feel much safer going to bed on election night if we had a firearm in the house. And he said, um, what do you think is going to happen? 
And I said, well, you know, Long Island is not that far. There are all these, you know, really right wing conservative Trump supporters in Long Island. What if they get some kind of white supremacist mob together? Where are they going to come? They're going to come to Harlem. Right. If you want to hunt black people, you're going to come to Harlem. This is my thinking in my head. Let me tell you something. <laughs> so I'm like, if they want to come, they what, they, what they're not trouble. doing is coming all the way down from Long Island. <laughs> yeah, they're thank not, you. That, they're not coming to that, Harlem. They're not going as they're Harlem. Not right. to Harlem. They don't that's, want that, that was my husband's argument. He was like, yeah, no, it, well, Amar, in my, my thinking. In and my thinking was the exact opposite. I had, I had family members and friends texting me like, DC's going to be crazy. We saw they're boarding up downtown. Are you going to be safe? Are you guys? And I was like, I live in Northeast. There ain't no riffraff coming over here. Like I'm surrounded right. by black people. No one's, no one's <laughs> bothering us. Like I, I don't live in an H&M downtown. I'm going to be fine. Right. Like no one's, no one's messing with me. The paranoia was setting in. So that was my thinking is that what if some race shit pops off and I can't defend my children. So then the next day I'm listening to the daily. They had um, an episode all about gun sales and how they're through the roof and they're normally high before elections, but they're even higher than previous elections. And they were speaking to people on both sides. And there was someone on the exact other side of the issue, someone who lived in the suburbs, who was making the reverse of my argument. And they were saying, well, you've been seeing all these mobs in cities what if they come to the suburbs to start some race trouble on election night? And at that moment, I realized where I stand in this process, because I, I'm only seeing the world through my lens, which is constantly reinforced by my friends and family and the people I follow on social media and the articles that Twitter tells me I should read and the Google News feed and what they tell me I should read. And it makes it very difficult to know what's real. And if I'm having that trouble and I know how the media works, then what is happening with the average person? Well, but but Mara, but you're but but I would what I would argue is that you weren't relying on your experience there. So so what I would say is that exactly the thing I want you to check is the, is your media inputs. So whether that's polls or whether that's Facebook or so in your life experience, when have white mobs come to Harlem? A lot right? of things have happened this year, Melissa. That I sure. Know. Okay, <laughs> great. Granted, granted. <laughs> So before we go, um, I want to look forward um, a little bit because, you know, Melissa, when, when you talked about your reaction to seeing what we've seen so far, I had the exact same reaction when I woke up this morning because remember, I didn't see any of the interim. Went to bed at 930, woke up this morning. <laughs> I looked at the result because I didn't want to hear. I mean, no disrespect. I think he's fantastic, but I don't want to hear John King talk about some county I never heard of with one percent of the vote in. Like I, I, there was just too well, stressful. System checked in. Five hours of live. I saw some of that. You no, could, I did watch you some could of have that. Hung out with us. I know. No, I did. I did. I watched some of that, and that was really fun. But I just didn't have the stomach to stay up all night. And so when I woke up this morning and I saw the results, I had the exact same experience that you did, which is it doesn't matter who wins at this point. Now, of course, it does. It matters a lot. But my emotional reaction is, I already have my answer. Because with everything that's happening in the country, with everything this president has done, the fact that the this many people has now voted for him to have a second term is a mirror. It holds up a mirror to the country and it shows us the country that we're dealing with. And it's a country that does not love black people back. We love this country, but it does not love us back. So where do we go from here? It, 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 let's say Biden wins. We still have to deal with the reality that half the country, that our neighbors were totally fine with a white supremacist getting another four years. Well, 
in some ways, I mean, that makes it Wednesday morning in America. Uh, but there was know. a time period where that wasn't okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. that say and do now? We're socially unacceptable. No. It was where where no. there was the thread. No. What was holding us together was was respectability. That's gone. Nope. 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 nope respectability was never saving us. Patriarchy was never saving us. Politeness was never saving us. Um, dash cams do not save us. Body cams do not save us. This struggle is some real ass eternal shit. And I'm, I just don't even really know how else to say it. There was no, it was there was no time when it was better. There, there, I, quieter. I just, in in private, sure, closed doors, sure. family dinners. But let but me tell you, let me tell you why I like, wasn't calling you. But a, a let nigger. me tell you why I like my president. Let me tell you why I like my President Trump, because it's exactly right. It was quieter. And as much as white supremacy is being signed off on again, it is not every single white person. And boy, this president got white people saying all kinds of other stuff, like the word white supremacy. Imagine we had just had this exact same conversation five years ago and talked even about the existence of white supremacy, even the existence of it. You would have been thrown out of the public sphere. People would have told you that white supremacy was not even a thing that you could talk about unless you were talking about it in historical context. How many Confederate statues came down under President Obama? No, not nary one, but they start tumbling under Trump. Now, I want to be really clear. That is not a reason to have Trump. We don't need an enemy in order to move these things forward. And he is far too dangerous, literally at least a quarter of a million Americans in this crisis. But I mean, the man created a policy that separated children from their families. We have kids. Imagine, imagine that it has been months and years and you don't know where your child, I mean, I, it ends me, it ends me emotionally to think of what this is. But it is not that it was not always that way. The police were murdering black men who were unarmed before we filmed it. We, we, I think we can't tell ourselves a story that respectability was ever saving us. We are going to stay in the struggle because it's not over, because we're not so cute or so special or so fresh that we get to live in a time that doesn't include authoritarianism, that doesn't include disenfranchisement, that doesn't include global pandemics. Why? Am I cuter and smarter and more fresh than my grandma or my grandfather or my great-great-grand? I mean, it's not intergenerational chattel bondage, and they were better than me. I'm not as brave as Harriet Tubman. So we, what are we going to do? We're going to keep going. We're going to stay in the struggle and we're going to acknowledge and recognize that white supremacy is not planning to give up or go away or even recede. It is going to keep trying to reassert itself. You know, I, I definitely I agree with the premise that um, that these years have bring, brought things to the fore in a way that is that is different. And it is true, it's objectively true, I'm working on a book on this now, it's objectively true that the most extreme end, violence, has increased. Uh, around. You know, we're seeing more hate crimes, we're seeing more white supremacist terror incidents, unquestionably, right? Um, and so I agree broadly that things are, to, to, to that extent, worse by whatever measure that is. But but I but I do try to think about right as I think through all right so the pre the pre Obama years where where you're talking about Katrina you're talking about Muslim surveillance and the backlash to 9 11 uh, you're talking about 
a massive immigration debate that was taking place at the time. You go back to the 90s and you're and you're into the war on crime. You're into the affirmative action debates. You're into the uh, you know that that I do think that there can be you know I we get on white people all the time for like wishing for a good old days that didn't exist. And, and, I, and I do wonder if like we might all be guilty of that to some extent, right? Now, now, I don't say that to in any way though invalidate the fact that there is a urgency and a like, physicality of threat that I think feels different, right? In, in, in this moment, um, and I think that's real. And I think there's like, there's clearly data and anecdote to back that. You're always in resistance in your lifetime, which is about carving out right? Black humanity. It's about carving out joy. It's about, right, being all of our fully human selves, right? It's about working on, I love what Mara said about us loving the country, right? Maybe no one believes in the aspiration of America more than Black folk, which is kind of wild, right? But the very idea that we, in fact, seem to believe that all persons are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that governments are instituted among persons to protect these rights, and this is a key part, right? derive their just powers from consent of the governed, right? So the very idea that we must consent, that we are equal, that we like have a sense of urgency about the aspiration of the American project and self-governance, yes. And we don't get to choose how the struggle shows up. We just, it wasn't like you say, well, you know, so is it is it better to, to leap off the side of this ship in the context of the transatlantic slave trade or to just go ahead and survive it and maybe five generations down the road, my kid can go to Harvard. No, you like <laughs> you're in the midst of it. So. You know, like I feel like our job is we're in the struggle. We have to remember that that we too will experience struggle, that we are not, that we are that it's part of our humanity, but we also don't get to say how white supremacy is going to express itself on us. We just have to both survive it and be strategic in the context of it. Wesley, you look like you need a nap. I do. I can't. I. It's like my body's tired. My brain won't turn off. It's, it's just one of those. I know that feeling. Well. I need this whole week to be over. You ever try CBD mints? Like any CBD? No, I never did CBD. I've done, I, I'll do like melatonin or whatnot, but I haven't done CBD. CBD, I've had the best sleep of my life. Like when you can't turn your brain off with the CBD. CBD. Which is me most nights. So. Right. Well, then it sounds like you're a prime candidate. You're in DC, so you can get, That's right. you can get your CBD with THC, as people say. And I'm like, wait a minute, aren't you just talking about weed? <laughs> well, you know, maybe we actually buried the good news of the election night is that uh, New Jersey legalized recreational marijuana. Well, so, or Oregon decriminalized all drugs, which I think is fantastic because drug users, if they have a problem, should be treated as addicts and patients, mm -hmm. not criminals. Plus, if you live in Jersey or Oregon, you might need some anyway. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.